Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thank you as always for tuning in and hopefully you're enjoying the show and the variety of eye-opening and ear-opening guests we bring to you on a regular basis. As I've been telling people over the last number of weeks, we're about to undergo a number of exciting changes here at Alchemy, including increasing our output to air weekly. As you know, we're currently free, completely non-profit and available on demand from alchemyradio.net and iTunes. And our listenership is increasing every day, which brings its own problems, those problems being financial, of course. As the show increases, so do the costs. It's becoming more and more expensive to prepare, produce and host. So we're reaching out and hopefully you can help us in some small way. We rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising free format and are very, very, very grateful for any help that can be offered and lots of people have done so. We put no fixed cost on your donations and every little helps. So for example, if you could spare... Even the price of a cup of coffee or a bar of chocolate or whatever it is you can spare every month, it would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. You can also check out our new Twitter account, which is active all the time, twitter.com forward slash alchemy radio. So get following and interacting with us for all your feedback, guest suggestions and other input. So on to the show. This week we have two guests. We've Ida Lawrence and Soren Dreyer. First up is Ida, who has been a writer for nearly 30 years. She has contributed to and edited two anthologies on racial justice and human rights and has written extensively on a number of subjects that help to explore self and society. Her approach is to find and express the inner truth, the answer to why. Ida's current focus is on her blog, talktomoms.com, that's T-A-L-K, the number two, M-O-M-Z.com, in which she offers articles on the inner journey, evolution and the metaphysical concepts. Her new book is entitled The Warrior's Way to Heaven on Earth, and that's what we'll be speaking about at length on Alchemy today. So, Ida, you're extremely welcome. How are you? I'm wonderful, John, and it's a great pleasure for me as well. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, I'm familiar with your work, and there's a lot we can talk about. But before we delve into your book initially, let's have a little bit of a chat about how you got from where you were to where you are now. I suppose your, your life or your spiritual path. Oh, that's quite a long story, <laughs> as it is for everybody, I'm sure. But I went, um, you know, uh, being a child of um, a Christian minister, mm-hmm. and I was raised in a spiritual environment. And I left that at some point because I, I was confined by religion. I found it to be too restricting. And uh, eventually I became more of a, an advocate a political advocate than a spiritual seeker. Right. And there was spiritual thought behind my advocacy. Uh, I worked on behalf of um, Afro-descendants, the rights of uh, African Americans in the United States. And of course my calling was to try to, to do the right thing. So it was a spiritual task, but it, was, it came out uh, in a political arena. I wrote a couple of books having to do with uh, human rights and Afro-descendants and had a great concern as well for indigenous peoples 
in the United States and moved on from there. And part of my reason for becoming so involved in uh, Afro-descendant rights was that uh, my husband, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, was, was an Afro-descendant man. So I did enter into the black community for quite a while, learned a great deal there, and uh, when he left the earth, then I had to search for who I was. And that began my, my journey into writing and you know, stepping forward as an author in this arena. And before we tread that spiritual path, I suppose, Ida, I'm very interested. We've never had a guest on before who has such a, such explicit knowledge, I suppose, of the indigenous population of the U.S. Um, let's talk about your work with them for a little while and how things are for the indigenous population and how things you anticipate will become in the coming years, because the U.S. is a rapidly changing place and for no people more so than the indigenous population. I mean, they've, they've always found things difficult and had a tough path there. How have things been over the last while? Well, I have, uh, uh, in 2004, I stopped my um, advocacy at the UN. So I haven't been following uh, closely. My ties were much closer to... Uh, you know, the descendants of enslaved populations than to the uh, native peoples here because uh, that's where my uh, focus was at the UN. But I was raised in South Dakota and very, very close to uh, Pine Ridge, if you recall the uh, Wounded Knee, the book on Wounded Knee and the battles at Wounded Knee. So I was very familiar and uh, it tore at my heart as a young person to see what was going on. I'm still very much uh, very much an advocate of justice with regard to what has happened to the children of uh, native peoples uh, being taken from their homes and so on. There's a long history of suffering and I feel that you know when the people go through such kinds of suffering Uh, And then we find ourselves in a position of suffering nowadays. We have to look back and see what we caused, what kind of pain we caused others. When we're looking at our own pain, as this global conditions worsen for us? We have to look at what we've done and say, uh, I wonder what was in their heart as they walked the Trail of Tears. I wonder what was in their heart at Pine Ridge. I wonder what was in their heart toward us because it all somehow fits in the mix. Uh, so that's where my, that's the spiritual part of this work, is that we have to be conscious of the suffering of others collectively, as well as individually. Absolutely, because I think quite often um, our individual paths are microcosmic versions of what's going on in the bigger picture. So. Uh, uh, for for us to become more than the sum of our parts collectively as a race or as a, a as spiritual as a spiritual group, I think it's very important that we look to the self first. And your book, The Warrior's Way to Heaven on Earth, which is extremely interesting, it really strikes me as an examination of the self. And you seem to be very very in tune with who you are and what path you have taken and will take. That's if we're to use linear time as a construct for the purposes of this conversation. So. 
How did how did your journey as a warrior? Let's talk about the term actually warrior first. The first time I came across the term warrior in a spiritual sense was when I began to read the works of Brazilian author Paulo Coelho. To me, a warrior had always been a warlike individual and somebody who went out with a with a gun or a spear and killed people. And that's not the case at all. So let's talk about your interpretation of the word warrior first, and then we'll talk about the book itself. All right, uh, I came into this. Uh, kind of midway through my political advocacy, I sought out and found Stuart Wilde's work. And Stuart, kind of uh, his teachings and his tone and his wisdom rescued me. It was a rescue Mm. as I began to uh, look inside and work on uh, myself because I had been so involved in helping others, I was beginning to lose myself. And the warrior in me, or the warrior's way that I see it, is that we really need to obtain self-knowledge. And to do so, we have to, uh, we have to deal with some of our uh, war with ourselves in, to a degree. We have to deal with some of our uh, uh, ways of dodging the truth, our lies or escapism and come and in and be really honest with ourselves as a beginner and then uh, on the on the warrior's way it's a very much of an internal journey a journey of searching for the true knowledge and for uh, accurate information and then living according to it so the living according to it is the important part of the warrior's way And it's quite often the difficult part as well because a lot of people can certainly relate to knowledge or they can read a book or they can go to a seminar and the the information can resonate with them. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty of daily life, a lot of people have great difficulty putting that into practice with regard to themselves. How difficult or how easy was that for you in the initial stages, Ida, when you decided, right... I realize I have to delve further into the self. I realize that I have to take a new path. Um, so, so was it tough for you or was it something that you just found really easy from day one? Well, I, it has never been easy. You know, um, even uh, every, every bit of this journey requires uh, dedication and effort. At least it does for me. I didn't go in there and find it an easy journey. I had to get past an ego where, you know, I had begun to think that I was special because I did all of this work. I had to get that taken down and I had to realize that there's nothing special about any of us. Mm. We're all, you know, as Stuart would say, gray in color. We're neither black nor white. We're shades of gray. So uh, dealing with my own ego was item number one. And then carving out the time to learn how to to meditate and calm my mind and uh, look inside, uh, looking at my conditioning, what is true, what is not true, uh, what have I encountered in the world that is uh, blocking me. So this has always been, you know, it's never been an easy path, but it's a very rewarding path. So you take it on because you love the way the place that it's taking you. Mm. And were most of these aspects kind of in the subconscious as opposed to being out in the front? Um, you, you, you talk about shadow aspects arising from different experiences, be they cultural or, or uh, life experiences or childhood, whatever it might be. 
Um, do, you, do you think it's about delving into the realm of the subconscious and becoming more aware of that and trying to bring that forth? Well, that's a tough one, John. I'm not really sure, they, you know, um, if it would be... Oh, everything is subconscious except for the present moment, I guess, or mm. your memories that are clear. So I would say yes, in a sense. And another one, another sense, it is uh, going honestly into looking at your culture and honestly into looking at... Uh, uh, the religious teachings and delving into what is the truth of it and and what is the how are we being misdirected and so on so we look at the outside as well as the inside and try to find our way um, uh, with knowledge that's really pure and true not so easy I have to say because there's a lot of uh, in the new age movement there are a lot of things too that you need to question uh, we can't really fly over these and put on our angel wings and become, uh, you know, become superficial. We really have to be honest and dig in. You mentioned um, that there are so many, I suppose, diversions or mistruths within so many different movements. And I think any time a label is attached to something, it's automatically a magnet for, uh, for inauthenticity, if that's the right word to use. So... As, as you continued along your path and as you began to discover or re rediscover your own truth, what kind of obstacles were thrown in the way? I mean, be they obstacles from the self or egotistical obstacles or external, what were the big ones for you or what were the main challenges for you to try and overcome and continue to overcome because these journeys never end? Well, the, uh, some of the challenges were external. I had a family, you know, I had obligations. Uh, duties and so on and um, so we had to you, you have to balance those you can't abandon your obligations so you balance them and find the time uh, so those were uh, obstacles and some of the obstacles too are really interesting there are the expectations of others when other people have certain expectations of you and you are not prepared to fulfill those anymore so, you know, you, you need to move on and, and grow. So the growth part of it is always a challenge because uh, people like to keep you in the place that you are. Mm. And they're not really happy to see you growing uh, as it challenges them. So I would say probably the biggest aspect would be uh, overcoming the expectations of others and loving them in the same way. You know, you don't abandon them, you love them, but you can't live according to others' expectations. And how did you find the reactions, particularly of close family and friends, to that new reality? Because it did become a new reality, obviously, for people around you. And people are quite often resistant to change, especially when they see it as affecting them in some way. They are. And I noticed the, the biggest challenge was my own fear. My fear that they would reject me, my fear that they would uh, challenge me or make life difficult. And when I overcame my own fear of being myself, everything fell into place. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't uh, uh, overtly challenged by anybody. And in fact, they were finding the information that I was giving them to be interesting. Some, you know, it was challenging because it went against their religion, but uh, my family and friends are kind of expecting that from me now. I've been living a little bit on the uh, 
as Stuart would say, fringes for mm -hmm. a while. But I found that the biggest challenge in uh, confronting that was my own courage. And when I found my own courage, I was able to move without too much difficulty. And what helped you to find it, Ida? Was it, uh, was it a gradual process or was there some kind of a, a turning point or some kind of a, a fulcrum that allowed you to make that change and to, I suppose, continue on the path? Because quite often, I know in, uh, as I journey through life myself, it can be very easy to get caught up in external influences. And even if things are going very well and I find that I, uh, I am proceeding in the way that I want, something can quite often happen that can put a halt to things or equally something can quite often happen, be it a big life change, positive or negative, that can long term have a really good effect. For example, um, in the past, there have been one or two incidences in my life that have really I won't say they have changed me as a person, but they've allowed me to change as a person that I initially thought were quite negative. And now, looking back, and hindsight is a great thing, I count my blessings for those initially perceived negatives. Was that the same for you, or were things slightly different? It was very much the same, actually. I think the biggest change, well, the most challenging time was also the biggest transformational time. Uh, my husband of... 28 years, uh, became uh, ill with a wasting illness. And he's, we kept him at home and cared for him at home. And when he passed on to the next life, uh, I was lost. I kind of crashed and burned. I really didn't know who I was anymore, what to do, mm. uh, what I could offer. So it was a it was an internal time with no way out that I could see. And at that point, I contacted our friend, Soren, Soren Dreyer. Yeah. I, I asked for a reading from Soren. And that reading absolutely opened tremendous doors. It was challenging in that he said, uh, I had a great deal to offer and I needed to Cook up a banquet is the way he put it. And um, I thought about it, and I thought, I'm just going to do what he said. I set up a blog, and I started to write. And I messaged him and said, Soren, I'm doing what you said. I'm writing. And my blog was the beginning of what I'm doing now. I started to blog under Talk to Moms, and... Uh, I kept writing and writing, and it was a love affair. And as I did that, I thought, well, I have a big story to tell. I think I need to put that into a book. And I began to write the book, too, in The Warrior's Way to Heaven on Earth, and uh, finished that in a matter of about six months. Wow. So, yeah, it was uh, it, our friend Soren really kind of tipped the scale for me to lift me out of that um, position of grief and loss and and uh, loss of myself. I really, when you're a caregiver, you do lose yourself. Mm. So uh, having gone through that and having risen back again, I feel kind of like a, a phoenix. <laughs> back to life. And that's, that's always a good thing. And it, it is quite often from the ashes that we rise and become much stronger than we were before. I mean, we could 
call to mind so many different cliches about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, etc., etc. But there's often a grain of truth in these these cliches or any kind of allegorical tales. We mentioned it before, shadow aspects and being born into particular cultures or racial groupings um, within the overall family of humanity. Um, how important do you think that is for people? Because so many people identify themselves by their the colour of their skin or their religion or whatever label that they choose to attach to or that they're grown up or conditioned with. How important do you think it is, Ida, to cast free those shackles or to detach yourself from labels? I think it's extremely important. You know, we're all, we are all born within a group soul or a culture and so on. And there's a lot of conditioning. And there's also a lot of inherited feeling that goes with it, which is what I ask people to recognize, that feeling is passed along as well as genetics and so on. And I think our process of individuation and stepping out beyond the group consciousness is extremely important. Uh, we have to do it in order to be able to uh, you know, we can uh, then walk in another's shoes and see what the other is experiencing. We need to step out of all group consciousness, though, at, at uh, some point and realize that we are one. We are all uh, divine. We're all divine energy. And so we have a long way to go. But, but uh, recognizing and honoring each other's origin is important as well. And it gets in the way of our development if we don't do that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, if we look at the world around us on a daily basis, we see the amount of conflict that seems to be getting worse by the day. You see the destruction of nature and the environment, which is something that's a part of us, whether people choose to believe that or not. I, I certainly do. I think that we are all a part of nature and it's not something separate. And we've spoken to a number of people about that on the show. And then people look at their own financial situations and they rely on obviously jobs for money so that they can live on a day-to-day -day basis and economies are crumbling everywhere and there, there is a control system there there's no doubt about that and that really is tripping up a lot of people when it comes to finding their own truth have you any kind of tips or what did you do to break free within yourself from the control system i don't mean running away to a desert island as a lot of people might picture it but to actually free yourself and to uh, to remove some of the fear of that control system ida well that's you know that's all of our challenge because the the uh, the fear in the uh, collective unconscious is tremendous i've just uh, started writing an article on fear itself and what can we do about the fear that grips us as we see the decline so you know I would say that's probably the most challenging thing that we are we meet and are going to meet as to how can we create for ourselves a future uh, disengaging from the uh, control system how can we create for ourselves a future and for our children and what is going to happen? And I can't say that I know, you know. I, I don't know how we're going to pull it off. The warrior's way to heaven on earth is a journey to where we try to find our way to disengaging. And, of course, we can disengage by many different tactics that, uh, you know, of staying away from dark places and staying away from arguing and fighting and certainly getting beyond racism and, and discrimination 
and all of those things that tie us into a really low energy mm. and try to raise our energy to the point where we can see other options. So, I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a leader into how exactly or where exactly is our heaven, but we collectively, I believe, can find it. And especially if we love and respect each other, stop the competition, and really hold to our virtues and ideals with regard to caring for each other. And as you speak, Ida, so much of what you're saying resonates with me, and the, the message that I seem to glean from it the more you talk is that it really is an internal journey that the more that we can respect that is out with, the more internal respect we will have for ourselves. And that will, I, su I suppose, in a sense, create our own realities in that people will begin to treat us the way that we want to be treated. And it's that age-old message, do unto others as you would have done unto you. But it really rings true. And it strikes me from speaking to you and from reading the book that that, that is a huge underlying message that, that the good has to come from within and if we want other people to be good to us and if we want our, our reality to be a positive one and to be all that we want for ourselves, it really does begin with examining some of the cold hard truths that lie within. It does, John, doesn't it? It really does. We have to go there and uh, we have to be honest and with it comes a great reward and that reward is is friendships and trust and faith because you know you and I would not have known each other we would have never met now we've met yeah uh, friendships come from this and as they do a new community builds a community of people who see each other's work and effort and trust each other in a non-competitive way uh, to where they can help and give and I see no other solution for us other than to go in that direction. And I know there are a lot of people out there and they're saying, well, my neighbor really annoys me every day of the week and all I want to do is, uh, is hit him a smack when I see him or they'll talk about the argument that they had with their brother that they're not willing to let go or whatever situation that people have going on in their, their own personal lives. It seems to be the biggest challenge of all is to let go of that kind of that inherent negativity which I think connects to the collective fear there is a fear that if we don't protect ourselves through attacking others quite often that we're not able to protect ourselves at all when personally speaking through my experiences of the last few years certainly I think the most protective thing we can do for ourselves is actually to open up and to examine our own truths you, you spoke about the ego earlier on and I'm really getting at that because the ego is a very very difficult thing to shift and I Personally speaking, I don't think it's something that can be shifted entirely, but I do think it's something that we can learn to live with and learn from. And if people can accept our own limitations and the, the power that the ego can have if we granted that power over us, well, I think that goes a long way to suddenly opening up the door to internal truth, which will ease the path when it comes to these, these other conflicts and resolutions. Because quite often... I find if, if I sit, sit back from a situation and really examine myself within that situation, be it an argument or conflict, whatever it might be, quite often I discover that the actual thing that we're arguing over isn't that important at all. And that quite <laughs> often I'm working myself into that state because of my own limitations or my own ego or whatever it is. Is that something that you found over the years? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, always, it's always the case, actually. 
you might find a, a, a person who is uh, uh, behaving in a kind of an adversarial way. And it's not that difficult to try to see their point of view. And you don't necessarily have to be right all the time. Uh, to give way and to let somebody speak their mind. And then um, there are so many ways to peace, so many ways to resolving conflicts. And if necessary, avoiding, you know, stepping out of the way and avoiding it. Mm. Uh, so, yes, that's a very, very big part of our, our opportunity here in life, as well as uh, when we work with people of other cultures and other races to try to get into what that mindset is and to really dig it. You know, I know why. I, the answer to the question, why? Why does that person feel that way? And how can I help, uh, you know, how can I help alleviate some of that pain? So as we go through, these are, these are the processes that really help. And with regard to the ego, uh, I don't think it can be, of course it can't be eliminated, but you can honestly see yourself rather than, uh, rather than uh, establishing a, a false identity of how great you are. You can see yourself as just one of billions trying to work their way into understanding. Definitely, and there is certainly a transformative energy that exists as well, and you allude to that quite a lot in the book, that basically as these individual drops in the collective o ocean, we can create together and become more than the sum of our parts. And I, I keep harping on about that, particularly on this show with, with, uh, with different interviewees and stuff. If people work together as opposed to against each other, we do become far more than the sum of our parts. And I think we awaken a power that is inherent and that may have been lost due to conditioning or the control system or what, for whatever reason it might be, the strength of the ego. I think that as spiritual beings as opposed to human beings, we have infinite power, but we're just choosing for whatever reason not to tap, to tap into that at the moment. From reading your book, I, I kind of get the impression that you have, you have a sense of that or that you have felt quite a lot of that power from within. And there is maybe a slight frustration within you that more people can't do the same a little bit more quickly because it's almost at, at times when I read the book, it feels like um, almost like a, a spiritual manual and an instruction guide, albeit a nudge as opposed to a, a preachy type tome, um, to help us to become that individual drop and to embrace the drop as opposed to always looking at the greater ocean. Because I think if we do that, the ocean takes care of itself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It does. Where our work is on ourselves. And if we do that, the ocean takes care of itself. We don't need to rail against the system and pound on it and beat on it. Uh, you know, certain types of av advocacy are necessary, and I really find them to be a beautiful thing, and they're working. But uh, our work is within, and then as we move together, uh, without so much angst, we can deal with what the system is offering. So you think maybe it's a case of choosing our battles wisely as opposed to just going helter-skelter into everything? Uh, of Definitely. You choose your battles wisely. And most of them are within, right within your own uh, neighborhood <laughs> or, or within our neighborhood, our blog, blogosphere or whatever. But you choose your battles, yes. There are quite often, I think, signs that can point us in the right direction. And I, I spoke about hindsight earlier, and it is a great thing because 
the signs always become readable with the benefit of hindsight. But there are ways to recognise warning signs or positive signs or paths or directions that we should be taking for our own truth. Can you talk a little bit about that or signs or prophecies or any kind of helping hands that we might have in the external world to help us internally, Ida? Well, that's a beautiful question too. And, you know, we, we, we notice synchronistic events. We notice things happening at the right time. We notice, uh, sure enough, uh, I needed that and it was there. Uh, we also have, as I spoke about in the book, of uh, many different uh, prophecies that pointed us toward the time period that I believe we're living in. I do believe we are living in a very great time of change. Uh, whether it's uh, whatever religion has brought forward the vision of a time of change and how it will look, I think we're facing it. And I think we're born to go through it. I do believe we chose to be in this life and that we do bring our experiences onto us for our own wisdom and learning so that we can offer offer something to others and help each other through this time. Uh, I see a new world coming. I do. I see a heaven on earth coming. And I see us being the ones who envision it and create it. So my positive spirit is enormous. Um, the help that we're receiving, I can't, I can't go into that because I can only say uh, what I've actually experienced. I have actually experienced some of the celestial, but not nearly as much as some of the other metaphysical teachers who could speak much more eloquently on it than I. I have experienced enough to be able to say it's true, that we are moving forward to a heaven that we can create. And we must create it with two things, and one would be adherence to what is pure information or true knowledge, and the other would be love, to open our hearts and see others and be kind and be human and warm and, and take our egos down uh, to where we're not needing to feel superior to anyone ever. To where we're humble and moving forward as a, a, a humble and loving human being. Knowing that we have a very beautiful destiny if only we create it for ourselves. Absolutely. And you speak about the celestial there and your own experience of the celestial. Can you tell us a little bit more about that for those who may not be familiar with the concept? Well, I got a lot of, um, you know, my, I got my feet wet in reading Stuart Wilde. Yeah. And when I went through those books, I didn't have any experience of that. You know, the trance state meditations and so on, I hadn't gone into that. And to learn how to meditate and enter a trance state is a process it, where you go and you can you you do begin to see a few things you know your mind your your inner vision becomes greater the more you do it um, a few really personal experiences of the celestial were profound for me and that I was able to see uh, in a visionary state something of the beauty that exists and something of the love that exists. 
but that is, um, you know, that's a very small experience compared to some what some others have gone through and have enjoyed and the realms that they've traveled in. And I believe it all because of the small amount that I have experienced myself. I can't say that I'm a traveler. I can only say that I've experienced a small amount and I find it to be very valid and a worthwhile journey. And this comes back to the power that I spoke about being inherent as well, because this is something that everybody can do. And I mean, I know there are people probably sitting at home thinking, well, this is crazy. I mean, how can how can we be travelers in the celestial or how can I see these things? I'm too busy with work and I'm too busy with watching TV or whatever it might be. But uh, that that is the truth of it. And that is what we're getting at, because a lot of a lot of what we're speaking about is about attraction and what attracts what. And you speak about that in the book at some length as well. So if we can touch on that, Ida, and let's talk about attraction, because I think that's the key to a huge amount of opening up ourselves and our own world and manifestation. Well, you know, John, I, um, with regard to uh, what you attract into your life, I think it, it ties into everything I was talking about and that we, uh, our thoughts and our... Um, you know, our thoughts attract to us what we experience. And as we go in and look at ourselves and we delve in and find those hang-ups, those things that are drawing to us uh, negativity or attachments and so on, we liberate ourselves enough to be able to attract more positively. And included in that are some really beautiful words, you know, the true meaning of trust and trusting that this experience is this positive experience is available to me Mm. we trust it and we trust our efforts and we trust our evolution and we actually obey our evolution as we see it occurring we make decisions in favor of our evolution and this is for my highest good and sometimes those decisions are difficult we have to let go of certain things but as we do that, there's a certain amount of trust involved that we have made the right choice and that we do love ourselves and love our divinity. So, you know, uh, I hope I've explained that well enough to you. Yeah, absolutely. It's rather beautifully articulated, I must say. Um, and it, it makes a lot of sense, and I know it will to a lot of listeners. And it leads me on to the issue of preparation, because... I know when I underwent some of the changes in my life, I certainly wasn't prepared for them. But looking back now, I kind of think, well, when was I ever going to be prepared? Um, (laughs) I mean, when are we ever prepared for change? Sometimes things happen that we just don't see happening or we don't see things coming down the track. So do you think there is a way to prepare spiritually for, I suppose, the, the manifestation of heaven on earth? Or is it something that we just have to go with the flow on? I think that everything we encounter is brand new. I really, I really do. I watch a little child as they go out. You know, a child is born, enters into a certain family, uh, is in a completely new experience, and an experience they've never encountered before. Mm. They have to learn how to, how to deal with it. Uh, we can strengthen ourselves and empower ourselves so that whatever we encounter, we can deal with it. And that, I think, uh, we cannot expect or anticipate certain things. I've found in my own life, and I've lived long enough to be able to say I could never guess right. Mm. 
I might try to guess what's coming, but or guess what someone is thinking, or guess what someone is going to do. I haven't noticed one time when I've been right. I can only prepare myself to be able to deal with what's coming in, with the incoming. So if I have, if I'm self-empowered, and something comes in that's brand new to me, I have the tools. And I think that's our best preparation, is to have the tools, because anticipating and fearing what's coming at us is uh, simply self-punishment. Uh, I can't guess. And that's what I tell my children all the time, too. You can't guess what's coming. You can only make yourself strong enough to and wise enough to deal with it as it comes. And I think it's very important as well, um, maybe you'll agree with me, Ida, that people tackle issues head on as opposed to burying the head in the sand and ignoring things because disengaging from a control system isn't necessarily just about completely hiding under a rock because that's not going to lead to any kind of personal development and that's certainly not going to equip us with the tools we need to be able to deal with the issues that may arise in the future and I think that ties in nicely to the term warrior and I, I really I keep going on about it but I really like the use of the term warrior in the title of the book because a warrior can be a warlike being, and sometimes, um, sometimes if we are under attack from whatever it might be, we do have to fight back. It doesn't necessarily mean in a negative way, but we can fight back with the positive tools that we have, be it our own light or be it our spirituality or whatever it might be. Would you agree with that, um, or, or my assessment at least, that we should quite often tackle things and be prepared to be warlike in a sense? I do, yes. I think we, we cannot... We cannot blind ourselves to the time we're in. We have to know, and so I do go out personally to search and know. I look for the truth inside the truth of it. Uh, I look for, uh, you know, how the flow, I might want to look and see how the flow is going. I certainly believe we have to uh, be, be prepared in a certain way. You know, we can't walk ignorantly through this either. We're, we're in a great time of change. So, yes, I like to know what's going on. I don't like to be afraid of what's going on, but I like to know it. And I like to know what might be coming in my direction. Perception is very important. Hmm. You have to be able to perceive how things are flowing. So, I would say awareness and perception are tools of the warrior and we need to use them. And let's talk a little bit then about the divine feminine energy because you speak about that in the book and I know there will be people who are listening who won't necessarily be familiar with the idea of a feminine energy versus say a masculine energy or the, when we speak about the divine. So what can you tell us a little bit about that because to me the feminine energy is something that is, it's not necessarily embraced by the world around us on a daily basis. No it isn't, is it John? It's, uh, this is a very yang world. A very uh, intellectual and and a very warlike, uh, and I feel like um, well, let's see if I could just really simplify that feminine energy is in itself really aware of others mm. uh, as a woman, uh, you know, and a mother. You have to have an awareness of everything of the of the uh, situation of the whole household, how everyone is feeling, what's going on beyond the household. So we have an awareness of others that's innate. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's a part of our uh, being, which may add to our intuitive abilities. We can tell, you know, we can feel what's going on because our antenna is way out there. And uh, that pairs with and is the lover of the masculine energy, which is, uh, you know, an energy that goes out there and acts. It goes out and acts on the world. Uh, and it may be very singular, not so much aware of, of others and the effects of what they do, but the, the action energy would be the masculine energy. And we really contain both in a beautiful mix within ourselves, the intuitive and the insight and the uh, knowledge into what the other is experiences, experiencing, as well as our ability to act. Uh, a human being, being man or woman, who has both of those operational on the inside, can be quite a beautiful uh, manifester. And it's funny because I often look at the the realm of politics, and it's something that I certainly disengaged from quite some time ago, despite the fact that my family would have been steeped in it down through the years. And one issue, certainly in Ireland, is the issue of women in politics. And we're speaking about the, the feminine energy versus the masculine and so many people say, well, we'll bring in quotas so that we can have as many um, representatives who are female as male because there, there's a heavy bias towards male at the moment. And one thing that always struck me when looking at that situation was that, well, I mean, everybody is, is free to run for election or for office um, in Ireland, be they male or female. There are no real restrictions there at all. But for whatever reason, the number of candidates who are female stepping forward is far less than the number of male candidates. And when I was reading your book, I just thought to myself, and, and the, way, the way you discussed the divine feminine energy and versus, say, masculinity, and you, you've just quite eloquent, eloquently described it there again, it's almost like there is an innate feminine sense that exists within the female that hasn't been overridden and can't be overridden, and certainly it's something that men wouldn't be as aware of. Women are less attracted to the kind of the conflict that exists within, say, politics or that kind of control system paradigm. And I think a lot of men get caught up in it, be it something that goes back to the collective consciousness. I don't know. But do you think there'd be any kind of grain of, of truth in that? I think women just seem to have a little bit more cop on or a, a better sense of what's important and what's not important when it comes to their own lives and protecting those around them, be it children or family or friends. Yes, I think you're right, John. You know, I think that the political arena is simply less attractive to us because of the conflict involved. Uh, I'm not into uh, conflict. Conflict is usually ego-based, and and uh, uh, I find it so unnecessary. Uh, so, you know, in, in looking at it, it wouldn't be a, a realm that I would want to go in and start fighting on. Um but one would hope that, you know, in, in developing ourselves, either as, you know, the, the men as they develop, if they came into touch with their feminine uh, polarity inside, they would be able to uh, be far more diplomatic and far more uh, uh, able to enter the political arena uh, with diplomacy rather than with uh, conflict. So... Uh, I hope I've answered your question, but yes, I think we're much more concerned with a broader perspective, and I really like the um, I like the role of the elder woman, mm. 
in indigenous societies and how she is consulted when it comes to uh, issues of conflict. Yeah, it's funny because I think the certainly the media and society over the last hundred years has almost sought to brush femininity under the carpet. The assets that people should, in inverted commas, bring into the workplace or into the family or whatever it is, they tend to be hard-nosed masculine traits. So, I mean, for, for women to succeed, say, in politics or business or whatever it is, the message that we're constantly been told is, well, that you have to take on more masculine traits. And I think it completely mm-hmm. ignores the most powerful energy of all, which is the divine feminine energy. And I think w- when you speak about the indigenous peoples and the reverence that the, the elder women were held in, I, th- I think that really brings that home for me because that was done for a reason, let's face it. And indigenous peoples... They have been downtrodden for so long, and I mean, that was also done for a reason. There was no control system going to be brought in if indigenous cultures were respected and upheld in the and 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 the, the way that they functioned on a daily basis and their right. spirituality. If that was allowed to remain, for example, when the Spanish or the Portuguese or the British or whoever else colonized and conquered the world, well, then there would be no control system because that that's the essential truth. Yes, exactly very very true and uh, you know when you're talking about uh, uh, the divine feminine and when you when you're speaking about women going into the political arena and into business and so on it does you know it does make me a little uncomfortable to see a woman trying to compete with a man as a man yeah Uh, she loses herself in that she loses her beauty and uh, you know it's a it's a losing battle all around uh, we don't we don't approach the same way that men approach. You know, men may approach each other and uh, experience a little bit of conflict, but they work it out. You know, they they may clash and then they'll reason it and work it through. When we get in there and we try to battle as men, we really do become quite unappealing. We get ugly, and I don't like to see a woman uh, diminished. To that degree, so I hope we can continue to be uh, to influence in the way that we influence through uh, the means that we have, which are tremendously powerful. If only we knew. You quoted Wayne Dyer in the book. I think he said, "Heaven and earth is a choice we must make, not a place we must find." And I think that's quite pertinent, certainly in light of what we've been speaking about, because it's about intent and you finish off on the book with the word intent and many people both on this show and on many other shows and friends of this show and indeed Stuart Wilde speaks about intent quite a lot intent is the key to so much of this because if we intend to create our own heaven on earth well then that's exactly what we can create exactly mm-hmm. yes that it, it is it's our intention and therefore we can bring it to pass on the on the night that I was finishing that book I had a dream about Stuart and he and he left me with that word, so I put it in the very last word in the book. <laughs> it was it's the thing that matters, our intent. And it's an enormously powerful word because intent is what shapes everything that we manifest for ourselves. So, in terms of some practical steps, I know there will be quite quite a number of queries afterwards to the show. People wondering, as they always do, well, 
this is new information to me, but I'm really attracted to it. So how can I begin my journey? Because that's quite often the most difficult step for a lot of people to begin. A lot of people think that immediately they have to become warriors of light overnight and they have to cast <laughs> aside all the trappings of, um, of society and what they've known before. But that's not the case. And I know you'll certainly have one or two uh, positive suggestions that people can do just to, to take that first step because the journey isn't about being told what to do, really. It's about learning yourself what to do and feeling it as opposed to thinking it. It, it is. And, and it's really uh, just um, every now and then Soren and I will write an article together and we just finished one uh, which is up on my blog. Uh, it goes into those very small decisions that we make. We can start looking at our decisions, uh, those little pearls on a string, as to when uh, that's a very fabulous beginning is to just watch what you decide uh, and have as the bottom line, this is what I want to do for myself or I won't do this to myself. If it's a negative thing, we can say, I don't think I'll do this. I don't want to do it to myself. It comes from a, a position of self-respect and self-love and love for our evolution. So if we see ourselves as evolving and we look at the decisions that we make during the day, whether it be what we're going to eat, what we're going to do, how, uh, whether or not we uh, you know, do something kind for someone else, uh, when we look at those little decisions, those little decisions make us. We are what we decide. We are uh, you know, we become what we decide. So uh, that article points toward a real nice tracking for looking at your own evolution, loving your divinity, and loving your light, and increasing it as you go along. That doesn't make a grand change. It's just one little decision at a time. You may only do it, do one thing a day, uh, but it's the way to begin. No matter where you are, no matter how many compromises you have made in your life, you've fallen all the way to where you feel very low. You can. There's always. That's the starting point, and that's uh, the way to grow back up again. And that brings us back to the drops in the ocean and that analogy. If you take care of the the individual drop, the one that you have power over, well, then the ocean takes care of itself so looking at that ocean Ida how do you feel about the future and what it brings I mean as as our humanity as a collective because we see hear so many doom and gloom stories and likewise we hear a lot of positive stories how do you think we're going to progress as a spiritual entity or as as a humanity and that big ocean as opposed to the drops yeah that's that's an that's a, quite a profound thing to think about, isn't it, John? Because we have to look at uh, we have to look at the possibility of certain types of separation going on. Uh, we can't see the entirety of the human population uh, making these types of decisions. Although we see many millions, we're starting to become a very large number, and uh, so we there becomes a greater and greater schism between those who are committed to their evolution and those who are uh, committed to greed or power, among, you know, hunger, and so on. That We are growing further and further apart. And uh, 
I certainly can't predict how it will, you know, how the final outcome will be. There's never a final outcome. We're always changing and always growing. But I do see separations occurring and and a great deal of force in our corner. We're building, we're growing, we're separating from a certain mentality. And what we will what we will create from that, I don't know. Uh, I'm very hopeful, and I feel very full of light when I think about it. And it's hopeful for humanity, and it's hopeful for our children and the future generations. Ida, have you, have you any kind of parting words for us? Because I think we, we've covered a lot of ground there, and there's a huge amount of information for people to take in and to take on board and to experience and feel and no doubt we will speak about it and revisit it in the future if it's something that you're up for um, I'd, I'd certainly love to revisit it have you any kind of parting message for those people who are affected by what you've spoken about today because I know I certainly have there's a huge resonance in your words and the way you manage to articulate them is certainly something that rings so true for me and I can just relate to what you speak about it makes complete sense well, thank you John thank you very much and uh what I'm thinking about today and uh, what I feel in the world, uh, what I sense in the collective is such a tremendous fear. And I'm, uh, I'm trying to come to something within myself as to how do, we, how do we deal with this fear and how do we live with less fear, less stress. And of course, being alive in the moment uh, at the moment, while I'm sitting here talking to you, there's nothing to fear. Uh, we're fine. Uh, the air is fine. I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying the day. Uh, so we need some tactics and techniques for dealing with our fear because we can feel the darkness all around us. We can feel the collapse coming on. And I think we need to work toward living as fearlessly as possible, as courageously as possible, and not fearing death because I really don't believe that death is the end. Mm. Uh, so building up our courage for what is to come, uh, we're not going to escape it, we are going to live through it, and we need to really uh, have some personal power and have uh, come to terms with the fear that is handed to us every day. So I guess that would be my final words, is that we'll, we'll work on that. I hope people will visit the blog. It's uh, talktomoms.com, and that's talk, and then the number two, and M-O-M-Z, talktomoms.com. You can come there and read and, and check out all the links and, and uh, visit what you need to visit, and also uh, find the book advertised there as well. And the book is called The Warrior's Way to Heaven on Earth. I would highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's something that I've read and have no doubt will reread many, many times. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Ida Lawrence, it's been a huge pleasure speaking to you on Alchemy Radio. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope we can do this again very, very soon. I do too, John. It's been a great pleasure to meet you, and I thank you for all the good work you do. I really, really appreciate it everything you do to help us along the way. Much love.
Continuing our conversation on Alchemy Radio this week is Soren Dreyer. Soren has been on Alchemy Radio before. 
and it's a great pleasure to welcome him back. He's a Danish philosophical researcher who authors and compiles the hugely popular Sorendryer.com website. He's also well known for his extrasensory abilities. Indeed, the last time that Soren was on Alchemy Radio, he performed a reading based on a picture that I sent him through. And I must say, some of what came out on air from that has been, uh, well, it's been remarkably accurate in the last couple of months and indeed the year since we spoke. Soren, it's a great pleasure to have you back on Alchemy Radio. How are things? I've been good. It's very good to be back. It's an honor, John. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure for me as well. The response we had to the last show when you were on was truly amazing. And since then, of course, we've spoken already on this show to Ida Lawrence, and it was you who introduced me to Ida and to Ida's work. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Ida and your connection with her first before we delve in a a bit deeper. How did you guys first meet? I actually think uh, I did a reading on Ida in October last year. And uh, I guess our friendship picked up from that. I haven't heard of her, so I uh, did a reading and uh, we became friends. And I can see how you became friends because so much of what you speak about and the energy that, that, that I feel from speaking to you both is, uh, is so compatible. There is certainly um, a, a vibrational compatibility there. And I think that's why... Uh, it's really good to have you guys on the same show. I think you complement each other perfectly. And Ida's book, The, Warrior Way to, uh, the Warrior's Way to Heaven on Earth, is something that uh, I found to be, and I, I only finished reading it yesterday, Soren, but it's something that really struck a chord with me. So much of the information contained therein was information that I was open to. I was familiar with some of it already, but the way that Ida manages to articulate and present the information is... I think a real strength for her it's it's something that anybody can pick up and read and understand on not just uh, an intellectual level but a spiritual level and it is about spirituality so have you found that from reading Ida's work exactly and I think that you know Ida is one of the people who don't make things unnecessary complicated and uh, she speaks to a lot of people and I actually see Nobody can replace uh, Stuart Wilde, but she kind of picks up from Stuart, and, and I really like that because uh, Stuart had the quality of speaking to everybody also, and they seem to have that in common. So I very much enjoy also writing a joint post with Ida. It's always a pleasure. And I've noticed that the more you guys write together, the more of, of a following the work is getting. I hesitate to use the word following because it's, it's, it's not about cult of celebrity or following per se, but the number of hits you're getting and more and more people are being turned on to the message and the work that you're doing. Have you noticed that also? Yes, very much. And uh, we have, I think we have a beautiful work situation because I give either my inputs or she gives me hers and we just pick up and we don't correct each other. And when... When we are done, we actually, we are done. <laughs> so we don't go in and delete and discuss. Uh, it's a question of space. And in that way, yes, we are very much aligned. So it is a pleasure. Fantastic. Now, the last time we spoke, Soren, we spoke a yeah. lot about the control system and conditioning and the world around us. And yeah. we touched on that with Ida as well in the last hour. Um, in, in, in the last year, how have you found that things are changing, both for you and as you perceive the world around us? Do you think that things are, are working in a positive sense? or what, What's going on now versus a year ago when we last spoke? I think uh, things have speed now. And people are 
more and more into uh, an emotional roller coaster ride, and uh, they can have it so one week that they feel invincible, and the next week they're very vulnerable. And um, I think it is high transition time. It's high transformation time right now, and one has to be very focused, also inside on one's ethics and ideals. So we will go down, and that's actually what I see. I couldn't agree more. I must say, in my own life, both work and personal life, while things are going exactly the way I want them to, it's amazing how that turbulence comes to the fore. And you speak about one week, you're on top of the world, the next week, everything can seem to be chaotic. And I've noticed that even on an hourly basis and at particular times of the year, and I don't know if it's in any way related, but I quite often look at moon cycles and um, keep an eye on what's happening. And I can, I can link a lot of turbulence to particular cycles of the moon or particular times of the month. And I find that, I find that really empowering in a sense, the fact that I can become aware of it. But it's a little bit scary as well because there are external influences and there are things happening outside of ourselves that we don't necessarily learn from the control system or our education system or whatever it might be. Can you shed some light, Soren, on what you think might be going on that's influencing or affecting the change and the speed up? Yeah, I hope. Uh, I, I, there is this battle, outside battle, of course, in uh, connecting with the matrix. But that's not my focus point right now. I think uh, the battlefield is shifting to the inside. And uh, <clears throat> I think it really comes down to now. And I see it sort of picking up uh, really heavy speed in November this year. I don't know why I... I I don't know exactly why it should be November, but because I don't point to the celestial things uh, as goes for astrology and so. But what I pick up is that we are really confronted right now with our ethics inside. And um, that's really what uh, me and Ida did a post upon called the fall inside. Mm -hmm. And people don't want to fall inside, but in a way, stumbling is stumbling. Uh, things are also picking up on a more serious level now where people maybe maybe in this year since we spoke you know things have shifted to this this is sort of the point of no return you have really really got to stick within your inner values right now and don't um, necessarily go with the flow of uh, what's hyped and what is not hyped you have to be very introvert right now I think and also, of course, uh, in some way, exposed to matrix. A lot of things are coming to a head for the first time. I mean, things that were on the fringes, certainly in my life a year ago, are quite pertinent and out there in the open now, and stuff has to be dealt with um, in, in a personal sense. But I really like the, um, the, the falling analogy that yourself and Ida have used, because for me, I was always afraid of falling and... It's, it's something that instinctively, I think, as human beings, we, we, we try to avoid it and we try to protect ourselves. But I think there's a, a changed perspective that comes with falling. Sometimes we can see things a little bit differently when we have that perspective from, say, lying on the ground than when we are fully upright. And I think a lot of people, as they fall, and I know certainly in Ireland, be it for economic reasons or whatever it might be, people are, are, are taking a fall as they see it. 
all of a sudden it's opening up a whole new perspective or a new world to people that I think ultimately is going to be something positive. How do you see that, Soren? Um, it gives me a powerful image inside because when you spoke, I saw people coming out of this tunnel into the light. And uh, I think that's actually what it's all about. But it's their own light. It's their own light. And um, besides that, there obviously is a celestial light also. But it is critical mass time, I think. And, and it is not within my temper actually to, to say so. but. I, I I did a new thing. I, I found out that these emails I got from people, so they sort of reflected each other, and I saw a pattern. Whether you lived in Southern Australia, in Canada, or in um, Ireland, or in England, that people around the world had the same inner battles. So I put up this guidance series, um, which is which is a subscription, mm-hmm. and and. I see really, really good people getting downtrodden, uh, but not by the sort of big matrix, but the small matrices, by their families, by their, by their working relationships, by their friendships. And that's, that's really what I see right now here in September. Um, that's where I see people battling. It's very interesting that you mentioned that because I spoke with Ida about um, the analogy of the drops in the ocean and how we're all the little drops that make up the bigger ocean at large and that can become more than the sum of its parts. People rarely think about how many drops there are in the ocean. They think about the ocean as a whole and what that represents to them. But I think the most important thing is to focus on those individual drops. And if you can get the, what lies within correct, so I suppose the little things in your own life, well, then the ocean as Ida intimated, will take care of itself. And I think that's the important thing. And I'm, I'm kind of getting that message from what you're saying there. Yeah, in a way. And the Tao says, uh, stop governing. The world can govern itself. And it's, so it's also about, you know, giving up that control of we want, the control of what people we have in our lives, what... We want to control our work situation, but it seems like it's getting out of control. And it brings me to the Hopi Indians who said, well, if when the river f- uh, comes, uh, don't cling to the shore, jump in, the river has a destination. And that also comes with, with the picture I saw in my head, you know, people coming out of the tunnel. But it's like a rebirth and um, without therapy, you know, everybody has to stand for their own ethics and dodge the morals of the matrix. They have to go ethics and say, no, I cannot go there. No, my friend, I will not go there no more. I will take a fall if I do. And uh, it, I really see that picking up here from November and uh, throughout 2014. So uh, I think, I think um, it is sort of a birth. It is a birth. A rebirth. And do you think, Soren, then, that a schism will emerge or is emerging or may have emerged in the past between those that are willing to, I suppose, take the path of the river rather than clinging to the, ba- the bank and those that will steadfastly cling to that bank? Yeah, <clears throat> but I see it in a different way, John, because I see, you know, when we feel, and I certainly feel that myself uh, often too, you know, well, now I'm through this, 
crap. So there should be everlasting celestial light shining on me. But that is actually not what is happening, you know. Yeah. Because w when we let go of our attachment, we, we rarely go, you be, we go, oh, what now? Because emptiness kicks in. Mm. And that's what I call the void. Um, so I see a lot of people in the void right now because they have to sort of cling to another emotional immune system that, that they are so used to and so con conditioned to and that goes for myself too in my, my own life. And that's very hard because you don't wake up in the morning and say, yes, I'm free. Because when you are in the void, you actually see everything around you. You see the control mechanism from your aunt, you see the control mechanism from your friends, you see the control mechanism from uh, on, on your job. And when you start to see that so clear, and I think we can only, we can only, you know, we are most alert when we are sort of also a little bit scared. And it seems like the consciousness has, has two destinations, vacation or danger. And um, at some point, we have to walk on a razor edge of feeling a little bit edgy, feeling a little bit nervous, feeling a little bit on our toes in order to see those mechanisms. Uh, because when the mind is on vacation, it just wants to relax. So it is a very, very thin line between uh, not interpreting life as not having fear of life, but having that edginess uh, that actually is very good, um, I guess, for some time. And then we will come through, then we will feel uh, our own light. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't feel it, but it is not persistent and it needs to be persistent. We need to get settled within our own light. We need to more and more reassure ourselves that you, John, you are in your own light and I am in my own light. That doesn't necessarily mean that the light is equally sharp or it lifts up um, the same things, but we got to respect it. And um, that's where I see things are heading now. And that's very interesting because it kind of leads on to conflict in a sense, because I think if we do have people who perceive their own lights as being in conflict, well, then generally within their lives, there is conflict there. But there has to be a little bit of give and take, I think, um, on, on a daily level in our small kind of mundane tasks, but in a gr on a greater scale as well, because so much of who we are and what we do is about perception and how we perceive ourselves and other people and I think the important thing is to learn how to perceive ourselves first and then once we're aware of that perception we can cast ego aside and get to the actual truth and then all of a sudden it becomes much much easier to perceive other people's actions in relation to how they actually are and what their light is because I quite often think that our perception is what trips us up with regard to how we interpret other people's actions or light would you agree? I would totally agree, but <clears throat> my point being that I don't necessarily feel a need to interpret uh, other people's reactions because they are totally entitled to have them. I don't need to analyze them. I can just, you know, observe, mm. and, and, and that's a good place to be, but that's also a bit uh, voidish, you know? Yeah. Um, and that void sort of holds an emptiness, and that is... Um, 
That is where I see a lot of people are because we, a lot of people seem to have set out on, on the road and think, well, when I'm through these layers of the matrix, when I'm through these inner layers of myself, there will be joy, there will be uh, happiness all around. And that's actually not the case. There is still work to do. Uh, in taking the big matrix down, but right now I see the fight is going on within the smaller matrixes, which of course is a reflection of the big matrix we are living in. So there's a lot of sides to it, I think. I think you're right, and it reminds me of the uh, almost the, the the analogy of the Pilgrim's Progress or the long journey, whereby. Every step of the way, people think that they may. this will be the last step they have to take. Whereas if we look at the bigger picture and realize that it actually never ends, the learning never ends, the self-exploration never ends, and it can't end because if it does, well, I mean, what's left at the end of the journey? It's about the journey rather than the end goal itself, I think. Yeah, we'll always be on this journey. So when we picture this matrix to be absolutely dissolved, I'm sure we'll be in another evolutionary system where there will be another matrix, just more subtle. <laughs> so it keeps on going, you know. You talk a lot about the void. Can you elaborate a little bit for us on that and tell us exactly what the void is and should people avoid it or what is it all about, really? It has many layers to it, but what I'm experiencing now is that, as, our, as we have talked about, that more and more people having these inner experiences of feeling a little bit low and feeling a little bit down one week and feeling uh, on the uptake uh, the, the other week, that that's actually sort of approaching the void. And uh, as we also have touched upon, we are very used to maybe translating the void into a feeling of emptiness and as you have mentioned you know uh, people put a lot into that emptiness like uh, alcohol like uh, abuse of uh, one way or, or the other but there's a there's a spiritual take on it and um, from my end of the table here i see you know people can say well i am depressed i really uh, because if you have a clinical depression, that will statistically take 2.5 years to conquer. But what I see is that people are sort of getting a little spiritually depressed. And that is the hallmark of the void, because the void is empty. And uh, when we're in the void, it's like the mind has these two poles, you know. Uh, it has vacations mode, it has vacation mode, and it has danger mode. And when we're in the matrix, we are confronted with danger all the time, or fear. And we have talked about movies, and we have talked about uh, emotions and feelings uh, very much being the key yeah. um, to sort of understanding the matrix and where the matrix has its hook in us. When we're in the void, we don't have those emotions, we don't have these feelings, and that's what we are interpreting as emptiness. But it's not, it's detachment. And when we're in the void, our nervous system or our mind actually is on vacation and we should grant our mind that vacation because it is when we are detached also from the matrix that we actually can't see it. We become the observer instead of being the interactor and that's very, very important. And <clears throat> again, 
uh, when people are feeling down, low and weary. It has to, from my point of view, it has to do with more and more approaching the void. And that is why I say, well, just do it, go into the void, because the void either can be approached or it'll just emerge. And if you know what it is, it's no problem, uh, because you will know at some point you will find new attachment. If you don't know what hit you, 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 you can think, well, I'm having a depression and I need some uh, pharmaceuticals for that, or there's something absolutely wrong with me. So it's also a state of mind. It's uh, being able to go into the void uh, on a conscious level is actually, from my point of view, <clears throat> the steps of awakening. So in a sense, is it almost like a spiritual detox whereby sometimes we have to we have to clear away the good with the bad so that we can nearly start again or just refresh ourselves? Is it is it kind of that that type of analogy? It is very much. And it, it is not only a sort of detachment from the matrix. It can also be a detachment from very close emotional patterns, you know, where people are. Uh, that's what I'm dealing with. <clears throat> a lot of people who, who feel that their very close surroundings is uh, playing them on an emotional level. And um, that's one way to stop it by actually, I think we are very much here in order to master the free lives we have inside. We have our physical life. A lot of people are trying to master to master that right now by going into detox and being very conscious about what they eat. And we have um, our intellectual life and people are trying to master that by filtering um, the matrix bullshit out of it. And uh, we are also here to master our emotional life. And um, as we also have talked about, <clears throat> I mentioned the perils of therapy. Uh, the Matrix seems to be very, very keen on having people in therapy all the time because they'll keep themselves obsessed. And as long people, as long as people are self-obsessed, they'll, they'll, they'll never discover themselves. It is really a Matrix. It is really a Matrix. It's when we become the observer of ourselves, we can change. Not when we are dived into the navel. So in a sense, it's like uh, an, an unconscious work upon yourself rather than focusing always on the conscious or the ego. Exactly. And, and what I think here is that actually there's a fourth life we need to master that, that will present itself in the void. And that's the spiritual life. So we actually have these four lives. We have our physical, we have our emotional, we have our intellectual, and then we have our spiritual life. And if we detach, that can sound a bit odd, because a lot of people would say, well, <clears throat> I'm spiritual, and that's certainly an emotional affair. Mm. Uh, maybe to some point, but uh, that would be in the confinement of defined religion. If we go outside the box of, re of uh, confined religion, we'll actually find that we can formulate, we can integrate our own spirituality, and that's what people are doing. They're taking a little bit from uh, Buddhism, they're taking a little bit from Zen, they're taking a little bit from Tao, and um, they're sort of merging inside, and that is that is sort of a build-up of one's own spirituality that would correspond with on a soul level, and, and 
And I also see that uh, working with people in their immune system, you know. Yeah. I think we have a physical immune system. Nobody probably would disagree in that. But I also see we have an, an emotional immune system. But I'm starting to see that people also have a spiritual immune system. And the, the, more, the more they sort of go into that spiritual immune system and strengthen their spirituality, not by preaching from a mountaintop, but being very stealth, you know, and, and picking up the things they need, they get tremendously strong. And I think that's rather interesting. It is very interesting because one thing that strikes me as you speak, Soren, is that when people talk about spirituality, the vast majority of people are certainly in the past thought of religion and organized religion, which always offered a one-size-fits-all approach to spirituality. And that's not the case. I mean, people tailor their food diets or their physical diets according to their own needs now as we become more aware of, um, of food and what we should be putting in our bodies, as you mentioned. And I think it is the same with spirituality. It's not a one-size-fits-all. There's no quick fit fix. It's about picking and choosing what suits you as a conscious entity and an unconscious being as well. Yeah, and it corresponds with what, what we are doing in accordance to our conversation about the matrix, you know, that, that we don't take anything from granted. It's learning by doing and, and I, I really don't see the, the friends I have, you know, they sort of acknowledge my spirituality and I acknowledge theirs and we actually don't discuss it. It's sort of, it goes without saying, oh, you believe in that and I believe in this. Yeah. And there's no preacherhood involved. Uh, we kind of rest in it and, uh, and feel good about it. And actually expands it, uh, having the ex experience of expanding our spirituality, if I may say it that way, without preaching it. Um, but it's an internal affair and to me all that all that merging goes on in, in the void, it goes on in silence, you know. Nobody have ever been saved, I think, by a shout from a mountaintop. Um, uh, they have been saved by a quiet whisper in the hallway. And uh, I, I, I like that, so it's also very stealth. So what do you say to anybody who is facing this void and they might be a little bit fearful or a bit scared because it's not somewhere they've gone before? Just dive in. Because if you don't dive in the void, you'll catch up on you and you'll drown. You'll, you'll think you are in a, in a depressional state of mind and there's so much going on in the world that actually will provide to the concept of the matrix interpretation of being depressed. This is more like getting spiritually settled in one's own way and that does not go on in noise, that goes on in silence, and that is approaching, attaching to the void. Every time we meditate, we go into the void. Every time we go to bed at night, we go into the void, so there should be absolutely no danger in approaching the vo void in broad daylight, so to speak. It's the same, it's the same deal. It's very, very interesting. It's almost paradoxical in a sense, because one must by your description, detach from self so that we can reattach in a positive sense later on. Yes, on a higher level, on a higher frequency. No, I've never experienced anybody coming out of a spiritual void uh, going uh, two steps back. I always experience them going two steps ahead and they won't go back or they'll take the fall inside. And that is uh, what Ida and me have been writing about.
Going back to the Warriors' Way to Heaven on Earth and Ida's book, I spoke yeah. to Ida about the, the term warrior. And as you speak to me, it's, it's very, very interesting because we spoke about the warlike um, imagery that's evoked by the term warrior and how at, at times people need to be warlike when they're facing up to the challenges that they face. And at times they need to be quite passive as well and go with the flow. Um, and from what you're saying, and I spoke again to Ida about this, so much of it seems to be about picking our battles and choosing our battles wisely and deciding what's best for us as opposed to following um, an already predetermined path. Yeah, that's a good picture because as regards to what we were talking about before, if you confront the matrix, you're in a fight. You're in a fight and you have to fight in all directions. And <clears throat> but if you go in as a warrior, you won't know where to put in one strike, a very precise strike. So the matrix can't wear down, so to speak. And that is being centered within yourself. It's, it's like martial arts, you know, you don't want to you don't want to start a dirty fight with uh, with a taekwondo uh, expert. Uh, he will precisely know how to take it down with the precise amount of strength that he would use to do that. And that is that is what I see as buried in the warrior concept. You don't wait, you don't fight actually. You don't fight in three hundred and sixty degree angle. You fight in one direction and you you keep on being persistent and you only use a specific amount of strength and that and it, it, it's like a person you know if you if you if you if a person is used to yelling at his kids what is the next to do because at some point the kids will get used to the yelling so he has to put out another weapon so he'll start beating them you know mm -hmm. um, the solution to that would be, you know, don't ever raise your voice to a kid because you don't know what you have to pull out of your, on, on your pocket next. And if we see the Matrix as a little child, you know, a very immature little child, which it is, which, which it is on a heart level, uh, you don't want to shout at it because, frankly, it doesn't understand you. And uh, what to do next? You have to pull out your weapon and... Uh, I hope not. I hope we can take it down on a stealth level so we never know what hit it. Do you think that people are, are ready for the simplicity, and this might sound like a strange question, but the simplicity of the solution, as you've just uh, preferred, so many people are so set in complications and they need to, again, I think it comes back to filling that void. They, they, need, to, uh, they need to always look to something that's more complicated than necessary or to fill that void or whatever. Do you think people are more open to the simplicity of a solution or do you think that people are so blinded by what's going on around them and the distractions that it's, it's very, very difficult for a lot of people? I think a lot of people are very much, very much in a very sticky situation, emotional sticky, sticky situation right now. I, I actually followed that yesterday because <clears throat> my son just moved in, so I had to get a TV and I watched uh, some of the programs and they were talking about all these little problems they had and then the media blows them up, you know. Oh, 
Uh, we're not so good at communicating in our marriage and blah, 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 blah. Oh, I have this problem with my belly, blah, 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 blah. You know, and it's quite frankly, it's quite boring. I'm about to do a post called the paradise of therapy because a lot of people are actually more emotionally clever than the therapist, you know. So, and we are we are sort of caught up in these little sticky minor emotional problems where we don't see the big picture and the big picture is people are not freaking happy in the matrix so the matrix takes you down to naval issues and the naval is like a black hole in the universe that keeps sucking you in and as long as the matrix can do that people cannot break free and uh, we need to tell people well I had a rough childhood. Yes, get over it, you know. Uh, proceed, proceed, proceed. Don't waste seven years discussing that with yourself. And I see a lot of people do that. And, uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's really a nasty situation because you become a project, you become an interesting person with a lot of issues. No, you don't have a lot of issues. The issues is the matrix. You don't fit in the matrix. It's like, uh, you know, the school saying, well, your kid doesn't fit in this school. What? No, no. It's the school who doesn't fit the kid. Yeah. Gotta stop kidding me now. And um, people are buying that shit every day and that makes them feel empowered but they're getting a lot of attention you know? they're getting attention from therapists they're getting attention from the media oh we cannot blah 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 blah. it's all emotional masturbation get over it okay everybody has problems shit happens but that shouldn't keep you in confinement as it seems to do for so many people um, yeah. and I think self-obsessed well that's it and so much of it is to do with the ego I think again Ida speaks about that in the warrior's way to heaven and earth and what you're speaking about mirrors so much of what's in her book and so much of what we spoke about in the first hour I mean conflicts and um, I suppose awareness of the environment the small things that count um, I mean a lot of people for example will turn on the news and they'll here in Ireland about the impending collapse of the economy and the politicians are going to do A, B, C and D to fix this and suddenly they start to worry and I think as people begin to worry and as that fog descends upon them, the fog of fear as I like to call it, they stop noticing what's really important around them. So it might be their relationship with their wife or their kids or it might be as you said about sitting on the bench and looking at the dolphin in the sea or the blackbird or the deer as you drive past they can be important things for people it's about i think feeding ourselves according to what our dietary needs are on a spiritual level not about being fed what we are told we should be fed because let's face it we're all told on on a physical level we're told we should all eat mcdonald's it's great it's brilliant we should all take drugs and medicine all the time they're great they're brilliant when they're actually not good for us at all so i think if we can break free from that and actually listen to or or remember what it is that we should be nourishing ourselves with we're on a very good path indeed yeah, and uh, as you mentioned, you know, the media does the same as we, we discussed about the workspace. You don't have to attach emotionally. And that's, that's where the media have you in a lot situation, you know. And I was actually thinking, you, you mentioned the movie <coughs> earlier. Yeah. Y- yesterday I was thinking about writing something about the spiritual value of movies. And uh, 
I came out with this Clint Eastwood movie called Afterlife about the tsunami in uh, Japan, right? Yeah. And he actually does a brilliant thing because I went to see it on the big screen. Uh, I really uh, respect Clint Eastwood as a director. And I went to see it on the big screen and I couldn't figure out when I was in the cinema why I didn't feel that tsunami being a, a catastrophe. It was, it was actually very beautiful to look at, the way it was filmed. Okay. And I thought, wow, how could I, how ever could I think that? But he does a trick, and in in that 10 minutes he taught me a lot about how the Matrix manipulates you. Because when he starts the movie, you see these two main characters. You hardly know the name, and the film didn't come out that well in the US. And I think he did that on purpose, because the main character speaks French. And you don't really know why they're there. You cannot attach emotionally to them because usually in a movie they will give you an upgrade of who is this character within the first 10 minutes so they get the identification solved so you can identify with who you want to identify with in the movie. Yeah. And he, and would, he doesn't do that in Afterlife. It comes about uh, after the tsunami where we meet Matt Damon as a burned out uh, psychic. And uh, we find out that this French woman uh, is uh, working for a network in uh, in uh, France, and uh, then the film starts to speak English, <laughs> or the character starts to speak English, and that's where you can attach to the characters. And that actually told me a lot about how the Matrix works, you know, because um, I'm not in any way saying that Tsunami was beautiful, but it was really weird going into the movie and seeing such a disaster, but being able to observe it because you couldn't attach emotionally to the persons. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And The Matrix does the opposite. It makes you identify uh, within the first 10 minutes in everything, in the workspace, um, in uh, situations you, you really want to get out of. It makes you identify with your navel. It makes you identify with somebody uh, didn't treat you right as a three-year-old, blah, 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 blah. And uh, it, it really pulls those strings. And when you're in the void, you're actually detached uh, from a lot of shitty emotions that the Matrix tried to manipulate. And because you're either empty, you, you feel emotionally empty, or you feel a longing, uh, uh, melancholy for some higher vibes, some heart-based relationships. And uh, I I've really thought that was interesting about that. Uh, Indeed. Mecha it's mechanic. It's absolutely fascinating, and it's not something I was aware of. Um, it, it almost evokes images of... Um, of Bernaysian attitudes to propaganda and marketing and selling because when I, when I was in the, in the cinema last week watching this movie there was an advertisement that came on and it's the aforementioned McDonald's and I'd, know, I'd never seen the ad before and I had no idea what it was for and it, the imagery shown on screen was of a typical Irish farming setting a good wholesome farmer and his, his land and his cattle and everything about his life was just so good and the imagery was so strong and positive and, and wholesome and traditionally Irish. And then all of a sudden it, it turned out to be an ad for McDonald's and it was about how the beef is whatever, 100% <laughs> Irish. And I actually, 
I had a physical reaction to it. As, as it is, I, I, I tend not to eat McDonald's food ever. I haven't eaten it in well over a decade, and nor will I. But I just, I felt in some way, this might sound ridiculous, but emotionally violated by the ad because um, I, I had attached to it and I thought, this is great, this is positive. And then the imagery, which for so many people, the McDonald's imagery isn't negative, but for me it is. And when I saw this negative imagery layered upon what to me was positive, I just, I had that reaction. When you were speaking there, I I couldn't help but think about that over and over again because it was the two emotions there. And it just shows if if somebody can layer an emotion upon another one and they're compatible, well, then that's the cell, that's the hook. So if somebody thinks McDonald's is, is nice food and they see this wholesome Irish image in Ireland... They have their two positives and they have a double emotional attachment to it. And uh, that's going to translate into burger sales in that case. But I can totally see the point that you make. And um, it, it's amazing. It really, really came to the fore for me as you were speaking with Afterlife, the movie for you. And with that McDonald's ad for me, it is about emotion and it's about attachment. And I think if we can detach from that, we're certainly in a very good place. Yeah, that's the f- actually the first thing they do if you get employed at some place. They don't go... <laughs> You do. They go, we do. Okay? So, by using we, you're, all, you're almost instantly attached to a group. Mm. Okay? And, uh, and what I see, actually, uh, if I may return to that, is that where we are now, as we started out with, John, is that people are finding the courage to detach those emotions. But there seems to be, you know, it was the river picture from the Hopi uh, story, right? Um, there seems to be no detachment, sorry, attachment available right now to replace that attachment. And that's quite good. It's quite good to be detached for a while, but we're not used to it, so it hurts on the soul level. But if we are patient, if we embrace the void, if we understand that on every level we get emotionally manipulated, also within our very private surroundings, uh, if that should be the case, we need to face that and we need to detach uh, from it. And likes will attract like. And uh, I see people coming together uh, from where I am in my mailbox and in, in the work I do uh, from all over the world with the same issue. I'm standing here, I'm feeling hollow, I, have, I don't have my uh, usual attachments and um, I don't know what to do. And uh, it's like, yeah, but take it easy, lower your ambitions because it will come, it will come to you. But you've got to embrace the void and people don't want to go into the void, but they have to. So the message to take from our conversation is essentially embrace the void. and. There are people who are going to be listening, and I said the same thing to Ida when we were speaking, who will, will want to do that, and their intent is good, but they're a little bit unsure how to begin that journey of self-discovery for themselves. What practical advice might you have, or what, what nugget of wisdom might you have for those people, Soren? Who are about to end the void. Yeah. Just do it. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Soren Dreyer, it's a pleasure yet again to speak to you and no doubt we will continue to do this with more frequency on Alchemy Radio. It's, it's, it's an absolute joy to speak to you. Thank you for joining me. Same back, much Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. I'm your masters of war. 
Here that build the big guns Here that build the death planes Here that build all the bombs Here that hide behind walls Here that hide behind discs I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But built to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten all the triggers For the others to fire And then you sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion While the young people's blood Flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud He's thrown the worst fear That can ever be hurled Fear to bring children Into the world For threatening my baby Unborn and unnamed You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins How much do I know But to talk out of turn You must say that I'm young You might say I'm unlearned But there's a one thing I know I'm younger than you That even Jesus would never forgive what you do Let me ask you one question Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find When your death takes its toll All the money you made will never buy back your soul And I hope that you die And your death will come soon I follow your casket 
by the pale afternoon And I watch while you're lured Down to your deathbed And I stand over your grave Till I'm sure that you're dead I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are extremely grateful for any help you can offer. We put no fixed cost on your donations. Every little helps. So, for example, if you can spare us even the price of a cup of coffee every month, this would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website, and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. And indeed, thank you to everybody who did help us out over the last month. It's, uh, it's keeping things afloat, and we're very, very grateful. Our next guest is Zen Gardner, and we'll be discussing terraforming, eugenic, societal Stockholm syndrome, and lots, lots more. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?